Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Okay, so last week we looked at prayer fuels power, and I just uh, encourage you to keep using the least amount of words to ask for the most important things on your heart, as we talked about last week. But today we're looking at God's Word is our foundation. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27. We're going to read a few verses at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, When we're talking about kingdom culture, we're actually talking about our values and what informs how we behave here at Kingdom Church. And by behave, I don't mean just following a strict rules or guidelines or a system. I mean living out of a transformed heart as we walk with Jesus, informing the culture of who we are as a church and how we operate. And it's so important that we understand that we're a church that is founded on the truth of God's Word. The question we don't ask is, well, what's my opinion about that? The question we ask is, what does God's Word say about that? Nothing wrong with sharing an opinion, but at the end of the day, every opinion of man must submit to the truth of God's Word. And so we've got to study it, we've got to understand it. And so in Matthew 7 verse 24, it says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Four years ago, nearly four years ago, my mother passed away. And after my mother passed away for 12 months, I really wrestled with grief. There was almost like this storm or fog of grief that I wrestled with. If you've ever lost a loved one close to you, they passed away, you'll know the experience of dealing with grief and the impact of it, not just on your emotions, but on your mind and on your physical body. And for several months after my mum passed away, I was still travelling full-time as an itinerant minister and I was really wrestling with fatigue and tiredness. But it all sort of came to a a screeching halt in terms of a culmination of events where my family and I, we were holidaying on the west coast of America in California. And in fact, we found ourselves day one in Disneyland at the happiest place on earth. And while my wife and my kids were having a jolly old time, I actually literally imploded. I started to become quite anxious and uh, started to develop all sorts of fears and claustrophobia and all sorts of things. And I look back at it now and it's quite humorous that it happened in Disneyland. Uh, but at the time, it really was something concerning to me that really I needed to deal with and address. I had to actually take a couple of days off just be- to begin to process the grief of my mother's loss and the associated emotions and experiences that I was feeling in my physical body. After those three days, I in fact jumped on a plane and went to minister to a group of pastors and leaders, which I previously had planned before I went on the trip, 
just for 24 hours in Portland, Oregon. I flew out of LAX, landed in Portland, ministered for several hours. And then as they were taking me back to the airport, Portland had the worst snowstorm in 30 years, hit the town and the entire airport was snowed in. I couldn't get to a hotel, had to stay overnight wandering the airport, trying to find a place of solace to rest my head. And uh, there was uh, no planes going in and out. I'd been on three or four planes that had been cancelled and then they told us to get off the plane and there's no more planes coming till the next day, provided the snowstorm cleared. And so the next day, I in fact found myself on this plane for three or four hours sitting at the gate, waiting while they were de-icing it, finding myself wrestling once again with thoughts of anxiety, fear, grief, claustrophobia, all these sorts of things. And I'd never experienced this before. And as I'm sitting there pondering all that has taken place over the previous months, the only thing that sustained me in that moment was the foundation of God's truth that I had stored up in my heart and that I had built into my life. And I began to repeatedly declare and meditate Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If I didn't quote that verse one time, I quoted it a hundred times. I was praying. I was praying in the Spirit. I was meditating, trying to upon whatever is excellent, praiseworthy, commendable and, and lifting up the name of Jesus in my life. I really was in a spiritual battle, but it was the foundation of God's Word that had been built into my life that enabled me not just to get beyond that temporary literal storm, but that storm of grief and of real anxiety in my life. No matter who you are or where you come from, the truth is the storms of life come to every single one of us. Sometimes I think that people would often look at ministers of the gospel, preachers of the word, people who others would call men and women of God and think that they don't ever face any storm or that nothing ever happens in their life. Quite the contrary. Preachers and pastors and leaders are just like anybody else. No matter who you are, it doesn't matter whether you're a Christian, an atheist, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Hare Krishna, a vegetarian or a hipster. You are going to encounter a storm at some point in your life. I heard a preacher say once, you're either exiting a storm, you're in the middle of a storm, or you're about to enter into one. That's not being doomsday, that's just understanding the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. The Bible says in John 16, 33, Jesus is speaking, in this world, you will have tribulation. There are gonna be troubles, there are gonna be things that come our way, but Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. I heard someone once say, life with Jesus makes everything better, including trouble. And sometimes that can be a very real issue. And even though we know theologically and biblically, God does not send storms. God does not send sickness. That would make him an abusive father. He is not the author of your pain. But what he does do is he turns what the devil means for evil in your life into good because he makes all things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. 
We need to get a fresh revelation of who God is. I believe one of the most important responsibilities I have is to present to you and as a church to the world a brilliant view of who God is. So many believers and so many people out in the world have a view of God that just simply does not reflect the truth of who God is according to the revealed Word of God. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. There is pain, there is suffering and there is tribulation. And whilst no one in this room would be praying for a storm at the top of their prayer request list, just believing in faith that God would send a season of suffering their way, we need to understand today that without a storm, we don't know what foundation we are actually building upon. Without actually encountering resistance in our lives, we don't know where we're actually at. You see, Warren Buffett in his own words said this, it's only when the tide goes out, you can tell who was skinny dipping. And there's a lot of truth to that. Never experienced that myself, but there is a lot of truth to that. And in other words, it isn't until a storm hits that what we're building upon is actually exposed. Anybody in this room who's ever lived in a house that's been built in a shoddy way will know that it isn't until the wear and tear of that house, the external elements of that house, do we realise the quality of the product that we're actually living in. I can remember as a little kid, four years of age, I remember it vividly, my parents' first church in Carlton, downtown Melbourne. And so there we were, the house, the manse at the back of the church, and there was grass growing through the floorboards. And even at four years of age, my mind could compute. This is not heading in a great direction. And uh, started to intercede for my mum and dad. And so I knew in those early days, hey, th this hasn't been really well put together. There's some wear and tear on this. Well, just as trees need wind to develop its root system to grow stronger, we can trust God to turn what the devil means for evil into good in our lives. You see, when you look at the first chapter of the book of Job, you discover some of these realities. In fact, this is why it's so important that you own a Bible and you read it and you discover that there are people who have gone before us that have encountered storms in their life far greater than what maybe you and I have ever faced. In the first chapter of the book of Job, Job has everything going for him. God's blessed him in the field. God's blessed his family. Job was a man of God. He saw the blessing and prosperity of heaven because in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the sign that God was with you was actually the blessing of practical prosperity. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy. Obviously, we see in the New Covenant that there's a deeper, richer meaning beyond the material things of this world that enables us to understand our riches in Christ. But in the Old Covenant, Abraham, Job and the other great men and women of God were often measured by these things and Job had it all going on. But Satan attacked Job's wealth, Satan attacked Job's business and destroyed his family and in one day Job lost everything. You go to chapter 2 and Job then is attacked in his health he loses his health. He has lost absolutely everything to the point that his wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. It's just not worth it. You, you may, must have made a mistake or what's going on that you've incurred all of this suffering in your life. 
In fact, Job's three friends showed up. Can't you rely upon a good friend to just point out all your faults and everything that's wrong with your life? And so Job's three friends show up and they begin to pontificate and articulate all the reasons why that Job has, you know, rebelled against God, sinned against God. And this must be the reason why all of this pain and suffering is in his life. And at the end of the book of Job, God shows up and shuts everyone up and gives the the smackdown in the spirit of what really is going on in this situation. And God ultimately restores Job's health, his wealth and his family and blesses him more on the other side than he ever had in the beginning. But it was in the middle of the storm in Job 23, 10, where Job explains and articulates his foundations in God. He says, God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. My feet will hold fast to his steps. I have kept his way and I have not turned aside. I don't know about you, but When I read that, I want to learn, God, what was it in Job's life that enabled him to have such strong foundations despite the storm that he was facing? And so the question needs to be asked, how do we build the sort of foundations that can withstand the storms of life? Well, as Jesus is preaching his Sermon on the Mount, he actually is bringing it to its climactic conclusion and he sets the context He builds a platform for the teaching of which we read at the beginning of this message. And he begins in verse 21 by saying this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, but that is going to be some of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. The fact that you and I could claim to be in relationship with God and even do mighty miracles and great works for God and yet not actually know who God is. You see, Jesus is saying here, if you want to follow me as Lord, if I am truly Lord of your life, then the evidence of that will not be in the manifestation of the power gifts in your life, as wonderful and as awesome as that is. It'll be in the fact that you are obedient to what I asked you to do. Because true love in our relationship with God is not just a fuzzy feeling, it's demonstrated by our observance and our devotion to those things that God asks of us. And with that platform and context and backdrop, Jesus then now leads into verse 24 and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. You see, I've discovered something that I think Jesus is trying to point out to us today. It's not what you hear in God's Word that builds a strong foundation. It's what you obey of what you hear that builds a strong foundation in your life. It's so important that we understand this today because we live in an information age where knowledge is king. 
Knowledge is lifted up as the preeminent thing to attain to. And yet in the kingdom of God, knowledge without obedience actually produces no fruit. It means absolutely nothing. Knowledge is important. Hosea the prophet talks about my people suffer for a lack of knowledge. What you don't know, you don't know. And what you don't know can actually hurt you. But it's not enough just to know something because knowledge puffs up, but love actually builds up. And so you can know a whole bunch of things, but if it's not fueled by love in action, it means nothing. And so knowledge must be accompanied and partnered with obedience for that word to actually produce fruit in our lives. Jesus did not say greater knowledge than this will you know. He said greater works than these will you do. Jesus has called us to translate that which we know into daily works so that we can produce fruit in our lives. One person with less revelation but more obedience will produce greater fruit than 100 people with lots of knowledge but they're not doing anything about it. That's why sometimes I'm amazed at the people that God uses, including myself, because I live with me and you live with you. And we all know the issues that we've got in our lives and the things that we wrestle with and struggle with. And you're like, how could God ever use me? And yet God does because it's not based upon your qualifications, but it's based upon one, His grace and your response of obedience to what He asks you to do. And so people who even lack knowledge of all the things that maybe we're even talking about today, yet obey and apply even 1% of what they hear in a sermon will produce far greater fruit than a whole bunch of people in a grandstand uh, that, that actually aren't applying or putting into practice that which they are hearing. I think too many of us in the Western church are actually more educated than we are obedient. We hear message after message. Do you realise there are more teaching resources on the planet right now than at any other time in any other generation in human history? You can dial into a podcast, read read a book, listen to an audio book. You can attend a conference. There's more conferences than you can poke a stick at. You can get more degrees than a thermometer. You can just bury yourself and saturate yourself in knowledge and information. But if you don't put it into action, it'll produce nothing in your life. You see, we hear more than we put into action. But what Jesus is actually trying to get across to us today, if you want to build a strong foundation, it's not what you hear, it's what you do with what you hear. I remember one time pastor saying, oh, um, Corey's a man of action. And at the time I was like, does that mean like I'm not very smart? Or like, it's amazing when people compliment us, we always go to the negative. Have you noticed that? We always go to the negative. And, and it's like, no, but I, I actually, as I began to think about it, I thought, you know what? I'd rather that because I'd rather take 1% of revelation and apply 99% of energy to it and see God produce something with it than just simply be an armchair expert and learn and learn and learn, but never translate it into obedient uh, followership of Jesus Christ. You see, James, the apostle in chapter 1, verse 22, says it like this. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. 
But the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is what James is saying. He's saying hearing without action is actually self-deception. We commit self-sabotage when we hear a bunch of things, but we don't actually translate it into application in our lives. But if you would accompany what you hear today with action, the Bible is teaching you're going to be blessed in your doing. I know about you, but blessing seems a lot better to me than cursing. Wisdom seems a lot better than foolishness. I want to build my life on the foundation of not just hearing what God's Word says, but doing it in my life. Why is it that two people hearing the same sermon in the same church, in the same service, can produce two different outcomes of fruitfulness? One a hundredfold, maybe one tenfold or none at all. I tell you why, because one hears, but the other does. It's not enough just to hear a sermon. As good as that is, faith may come by hearing, but faith is confirmed by your obedience. It's so important that we understand we have a responsibility to play. Some of us say, well, all the promises of God are yes and amen. If I just claim it, isn't that enough? Yes, all the promises of God are yes and amen, but every promise contains a command. And if you just claim the promise, but you ignore the command and you don't apply it in your life, the promise is null and void. The promises of God uh, tell us that they amount to about 5,476 promises in the Word of God. I'd encourage you to find one of those promises, but not just claim it, name it and claim it, but actually declare it and live it in your life if you want to see that promise become a manifest reality. Jesus says wisdom is justified by her deeds. It's not enough just to espouse a wisdom or a philosophy. A good theology is only good because it can be applied in our lives. You see, both the wise and foolish man built a house. In other words, both of them heard the word. Both built a house but only one house stood firm when the storms came because he had built it on the foundation of the rock. And in fact, when Jesus is preaching this message, the Sermon on the Mount, he's literally on a mountain where the crowds that were listening to him could see, had a majestic, breathtaking view of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was, when you're speaking of the sand, the crowd would be able to see the sand that surrounded the Sea of Galilee. In the hot summer months, that sand would be rock hard. But when the rains came, that sand would become soft. And unless someone actually built down into the foundations of the bedrock, then what would happen is the wind, the storms that would come would actually cause that foundation to become unstable and that house would fall. Jesus, when he taught, he was a master teacher. He would articulate things that people could grab a hold of and apply in their own lives. You might say, well, I thought all I had to do was believe. I mean, aren't we under a covenant of grace? I didn't think I actually had to do anything. I just thought I just believed and God's grace did the rest. 
Well, yes, we are recipients of God's empowering grace in our life, not to sit in our spiritual jacuzzis and sip our iced tea and watch Jesus do all the hard work, but actually we've received empowering, divine, unmerited favour so that we would be obedient and we would apply our faith in every area of our life. You see, the evidence of faith isn't only that you believe in Jesus, it's that you obey His words. James goes on in chapter 2.19 and he says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now you might be listening to that and saying, well, hang on a sec, isn't James contradicting what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2.8 when it's talking about you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not a result of works or your own doing, so that no one may boast. And here James is saying that apart from works, our faith is useless. Isn't this a contradiction? But actually you need to understand the complementary partnership of these two ideas of salvation and faith. You see, both Paul and James agree. The basis of our salvation is by grace through faith, but the outcome of our faith is practical obedience. We are saved by God's grace and what we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. But what we believe must correlate to how we behave. It isn't enough just to pay mental assent to a philosophy or to a doctrine, but it must be translated into our everyday lives. Faith may come by hearing, praise God, but faith is only confirmed by our obedience. We see in the life of Noah, let's go back to an Old Testament character, before their understanding of a covenant of grace, before the redemption that we heard about in communion by Pastor Raph of Jesus on the cross, Noah heard God's word about the coming flood. He heard God ask him to build an ark of gopher wood and get that ark ready for animals and for his family to save a remnant for the future of humanity and civilization. But it wasn't him hearing the word that actually saved him. It was his practical obedience of picking up a mallet, getting a nail, getting some wood and actually shaping and forming that ark. I heard one preacher say one time, it wasn't grace that saved Noah, it was obedience. God's grace gave him provision to hear it. But I tell you in life, if you and I don't apply it, we don't align our lives by the word, it's not going to produce any fruit in our lives. There has got to be a translation into our everyday lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. He said, faith is only real in obedience. If faith is only pondering on doing what God said, it's not faith. If the theory of spiritual formation doesn't lead to obedience, then the theory is delusional because it teaches that obedience is optional. 
You see what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable of the wise man and the foolish man who built their house on two different foundations. He's trying to teach us storms come to all of us. doesn't matter who you are, but only those who build their lives on the foundation of God's word will stand firm. You see, we live in a culture of shifting stands where truth is relative to the individual's feelings. Truth is relative to my circumstances. And depending upon how I feel today and what my circumstances are will actually determine what I believe, what convictions I'm going to stand for and how I'm going to live my life. And what happens is the further a culture and a society drifts from the truth, the more it will actually hate those who speak it. You wonder why maybe you get some ideological persecution in your workplace. We wonder why in media there seems to be this agenda to put down the absolute truth claims of the Word of God and what preachers preach and teach from pulpits all across our nation. Part of it is because there is this agenda to try and distance ourselves from the truth of who God is and what He calls us to because we want to be our own gods. We want to define truth for ourselves. It's the same issue that happened in Genesis 3 all the way back at the beginning of creation itself. I want to tell you that's also why the Pharisees who practice surface level righteousness, who are in fact building their lives on the sand of their own ideas, they knew the law, they heard the law, but they weren't applying it actually practically in their life towards their fellow man. They were using it as a religious system rule and rod to actually create boundaries and separate people from accessing the reality of who Jesus was. And the Pharisees couldn't stand when Jesus, the Son of God, would come along and say, I am the way, the truth and the life. Any person who comes to the Father must come through me. You see, in the kingdom of God, truth is absolute. It's found in the absoluteness of the way, the truth and the life of who Jesus is. It wasn't popular in Jesus' day. It may not be too popular today, but I don't know about you. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall remain forever. I've made a decision as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. As for me and this church, we're gonna preach the truth of God's word. And where we make mistakes or don't really understand it, we're gonna study it. We're gonna wrap our heads around it. We're gonna wrestle with some of the, the questions and challenges of the word. We're not gonna steer clear of it and just hope that someone just forgets gets about it or ignores that part of the Bible. We're not living by, you know, sort of, you know, uh, hopscotch Christianity where you just take a little bit here and then you hop over here and take a little bit there. I want to believe this, live this and practice this from Genesis 1 through to Revelation 22. Forget your six pack. That's a 66 pack of munitions armory that you can live with in your life, that you can build a strong foundation upon. And you've just got to make a decision. As for me and my life, I'm going to build my life on hearing and obeying. I may not always get it right. I may make mistakes. I, I, I may not even hear it right. But I tell you what, God just comes and champions and defends His people that out of the purity of their hearts are seeking to put God's truth into action in their lives. See, the question isn't what is my opinion about that, as wonderful as our opinions are. The question is, 
What does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about sexuality? What does God's word say about money? What does God's word say about how I approach my work? What does God's word say about relationships? What does God's word say about the environment? What does God's word say about the injustices in our world? What's happening in our economy? How government should function? What does God's word say about that? We've got to start to understand, you know, we are the most um, educated generation that has ever lived in the history of humanity. And yet statistics tell us and reports tell us that we are the most biblically illiterate generation in the last 2,000 years. And part of that is we've become so familiar with the word and we think that because we've heard the story that we actually know it. And yet many of us, including preachers and pastors at times, really struggle with knowing and applying what the word says. I want to encourage you. My prayer is, as I was praying about this this morning in my devotions, that you would fall in love with the word of God again. That this book wouldn't just be ink on a page, but it would come to life as you read it. You see, as you read God's word daily, the Holy Spirit starts to illuminate scripture to you that begins to shed light on your life. You see, in John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life, listen to it, was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. However dark the world may get, it will never overcome the light of the gospel. Do you realise throughout history, various regimes, dictatorships have tried to destroy the Bible, crush it out of existence, and yet no matter how much persecution has come against the Word of God, the Word's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You can turn it into a rat. But all I'm telling you is that this Word will not go away. Heaven and earth may pass away. Regimes, dictators, kings and queens, the royal family may have a few issues, but the Word of God shall remain forever. You're going to work out what you're building your life upon. Don't build your life on a tabloid or a passing opinion of man or the shifting sands of culture or the political arena. Build your life on the rock, on something that is eternal, that will be here forever. Why? Because in those moments of darkness, no matter how dark the world gets, I'm telling you, it's the entrance of His Word that brings light into culture into society, into our lives. You may feel like you're in the middle of a storm. I've been there. I know what that's like. As that preacher said, you're either coming out of one, in one, or possibly going into one. I don't prophesy that over you today, but I would want to know if I'm heading into one, what is going to sustain me? You may feel like the clouds are billowing around you. What you've got to do is you've got to dust your Bible off, you've got to open it, and you've got to allow this word of life to become a light to your feet and a lamp and to your path. You see, many of us 
We want God to give us the entire blueprint. If you ever just, you know, want to, God, give us the five-year plan. Maybe 50 years would be helpful. Because then I can just sort of be in control. And I can work all this thing out because we like control. We like to know what's going to happen so that there's no surprises. Have you discovered life doesn't happen like that? You can't control the outcome. All you can do is focus on the process. And as you walk with Jesus and you wake up every day and you open your Bible and you begin to read, the Holy Spirit illuminates and sheds light to give you one more step. All you need is one more step. I've stopped praying for, you know, the big blueprint many years ago. Lord, just give me the next step. And if you don't read the word that day, if you're not hearing and obeying that that day, where's your light? You're operating in darkness. You're living by the philosophies of the culture, the, the deceit of the vain sort of ideas of man. As wonderful as self-help books are, business books, lots of literature, and all of it is helpful to some extent, the reality is you can live by that and still be in darkness. Revelation actually means the unveiling of that which is hidden. True insight, which the psalmist calls us to cry out for insight, unveils that which is hidden. And as God's Word is revealed to us and is unveiled to us, light comes. When I don't understand what to do in a particular area of the life of the church, okay, go to God, go to the Word. God, what do you want me to do? Light comes. When I don't understand what's going on in my marriage and my family and with my kids, God, I need your help on this. And I open the Word, light comes. If you need God to switch the lights on today, you need to open the Word of God. And as you come to God every day, not one time in the Word is going to sustain you for the rest of your life. Just like you can't work out which meal made you healthy. Certainly wasn't the McDonald's meal. But it's like if I ask you which meal made you healthy, was it breakfast? I love breakfast. Who loves breakfast? Three of us. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Sets you up for the day. Smashed avo is not going to just do it for you one time. Chicken salad at lunch, protein and veggies at dinner, or Singapore noodle, whatever works for you. You can't tell me which meal it was that made you healthy, but every day you turned up to the meal table and ate good food, over time you became healthy. If I ask you which sermon it was that made you the man or woman of God that you are today, you wouldn't be able to point to it, but as you came into the house of God and gathered together and positioned yourself every week and allowed that Word to just saturate your spirit, you go, it was a lifetime of walking with Jesus. It isn't just one devotional time, one prayer life, one scripture reading, but it's every day. God, I'm coming back again. I'm coming back again. I'm repositioning myself again. Why? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. As I position myself in the Word, in the light, all the darkness in my mind, in my body and in my spirit begins to dissipate because the entrance of His Word brings light and I'm empowered and energised and anointed to do what He's called me to do. Why? Because I've spent time in the presence of that living God we were worshipping and fellowshipping with just a little bit earlier. You see, whether you follow a Bible reading plan or not, I want to encourage you to read until you strike gold. You know, sometimes I open up the Bible and I read two verses 
and I've struck gold. And it's like, wow, I never saw that before. Have you read something a hundred times and then the hundredth time or the hundred and first time it just stands out to you? It's like an aha moment. How did I not see that before? Well, you just kept showing up. And you read, sometimes I read and I read several chapters and I'm like, okay, a lot of information. It's not really sinking in. And I pray Psalm 119, 18, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your word today, God. And as I pray that prayer, the Holy Spirit, I may have been reading a few verses or a few chapters, but he illuminates something. And all of a sudden I see something I've never seen before. I strike gold. And when I strike gold, I sit there with that word. I meditate upon it. I mutter it in my mouth. I ponder it in my head like Mary. I treasure and ponder these things in my heart. Why? Because I want it to change me. And as you ponder and meditate and muse upon the word, it'll transform your thinking. It'll heal your heart. It'll shed light on dark areas of your life that you desperately need answers for. And when a storm does come your way and the doctor's report comes in, the son or daughter says, I don't love you anymore and leaves the house, which happened in my house, not with my kids, but with my sister nearly 18 years ago. It was the foundation in God's word that sustained my parents and I. When she walked away with all of her brokenness, you know, recently the Lord said to me, and I actually feel that I need to prophesy this in this room. The Lord said to me just a few weeks back, He said, son, I'm bringing your sister back home to me this year. I'm bringing your sister back home. And he got me to read this book, Jensen Franklin, Love Like You've Never Been Hurt. And as I'm reading it, God speaks to me out of this and he says, I need you to read this and I need you to embrace it because I need you to love your sister like you've never been hurt because I'm going to restore her. And I'm going to change her. How did that come? Because I sat in the word of God and in the presence of God and I allowed him to speak. You see, God wants to bring breakthrough into your family and into your life. Storms will come, storms will go, but what will stand is the word of God. What are you building your foundation upon? Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.